It be too late to alter course, matey. And there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove. And mark well me words, matey. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> the code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Welcome aboard the Black Pearl. Welcome to the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute, a daily podcast where we analyze, scrutinize, and plunder Pirates of the Caribbean films one blimey minute at a time. I'm Scott Artis from Journal.com. And I'm Heather Artis from BlackPearlMinute.com. Thanks for joining us for Minute 48 of The Curse of the Black Pearl. Since we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Pirates of the Caribbean this week, do you have a few bullet points or tidbits about the ride you could share, Heather? Break your colors, you bloomin' cockroaches! By thunder, we'll see you to Davy Jones! Sure do. Thank God. (laughs) I was just waiting for her to say no, and then I'd be like, oh, well, that's good. Um, For one thing, this was the last ride that Walt was actually part of. Oh, yeah. Before he passed Uh away. He passed away before the ride I don't remember how long. It wasn't too long before the ride yeah. opened. It was like a couple months or something like that, right before the ride opened. So it was the last one he was able to oversee. That's cool. And put his thoughts into. Yeah. That the Blue Bayou is only two feet deep, but there's a 40-foot ceiling. The Blue Bayou. So is that where you start off in? Yeah. That's that where whole, the, right by the the grotto area, and you hear the like kind of the well, you're seeing the house that's over the water. There's a guy that's maybe playing a banjo or listening mm-hmm. to banjo music, and he's you're playing playing the banjos. Yeah, so that's the Blue Bayou, is what it's called. Yeah, very cool. I don't actually know if I ever knew that is what it was called. Yeah, and it's only two feet deep, but it's got a forty foot sky above, huh. and the moon. Actually, if you look at the moon, it looks like the sky is quite higher than what it actually is because of the way they did the sky. Yeah, the Imagineers are pretty incredible over there at Disney. Yeah. And speaking of the song, he's actually there were two songs that were recorded for that guy playing his banjo over there. And one was Oh Susanna, and the other one is Camp Town Races. But they only use one of the songs, and that is Camp Town Races. Really? Yeah. I'll have to listen to that. Actually, now I'm trying to think of it. I'm going to pause while I think of this so everybody just sit tight. <laughs> I'll think of it later, actually. <laughs> so those are my scoops for the day. I'll save the rest for another day. Actually, I really like the way that that starts, but I wasn't sure how... I wasn't sure the connection, I guess, at the time. I always thought it was a little weird that you were starting off kind of in the bayou, but maybe that you were leaving kind of that whole Louisiana feel mm-hmm. and then moving into the Caribbean is how I maybe took it, is that you were going from... Something that we knew in the United States or in America. And then we were starting to make this travel and going out into the Caribbean where we were going to experience some pirate action. But I thought it was a nice transition. It was something that was really peaceful. And it has really, it's this real neat opposition to the to what happens later in the ride. And so you just kind of get this nice feeling and it's really quiet. But then again, if there's a restaurant there, you can't have cannons blazing. <laughs> People are trying to enjoy their dinner in this really cool atmosphere. And, you know, it's just all kinds of stuff. There's splashes in the water. There's cannons going off. There's pirates yelling. So you couldn't really have that, which would be pretty cool, too. I mean, who wouldn't want to actually have a restaurant in that portion of it? Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. 
be loud, but it'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, so we'll have to, when we do our bonus episode where we break down the ride, uh, we can talk more about that. But I just always thought it was a an interesting transition. As in a kid, I didn't really quite get what was going on there necessarily. Yeah. Uh, like, why are we in this boring part? <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, it was a neat transition. It just, it was like, it, it was, yeah, I don't know what it re- really was, but it was just something that didn't connect to pirates at the time. And I don't know if it really does now, besides you're just taking this voyage and you're setting sail from something that we know to something that we've never seen. Right. And that also, I mean, we've talked a lot about pirate stereotypes and romanticized versions, but that bayou scene is kind of a stereotype in itself of what people who have never been to the bayou kind of think is actually happening out there. Yeah. You know, that is what, dare I say, kind of the deliverance idea of what we think of, <laughs> you know, when we talk about that area uh, of the country. You know, a lot of people who have never been there are seeing the realities of it. They have their vision or their versions of it based on what is portrayed in movies. And oftentimes that's a snippet of the greater of the greater reality. And that's what's you know, that's basically what stereotypes are in general. Is, is often that that snippet of, of what actually is. Right. That's like people who think, you know, out in California, it's all sunshine and earthquakes. But, you know, California is so huge that there's so many varying climates and there's all kinds of differences. But you have that one perception of it, which is, you know, can be good or bad. I guess you can take it however you want. I, know, I take it as a fun ride. I know that is the parts of the Caribbean ride was closed recently. I'm wondering if they opened it up again for this weekend. That would actually, be a bummer if it's yeah. <laughs> no, they actually. I was reading that they were handing out 50th anniversary buttons and other things for people that were going there. So I think it was closed for some stuff, but they maybe it was in preparation for this 50th anniversary. Yeah, I think they were doing like cleaning up. So yeah, I think you're right. They're probably open now. I know it was op- it was closed a couple weeks ago, but you it would have to be open this weekend. They're actually doing a contest for the 50th anniversary that I saw and it's it's an Instagram or Twitter picture of you as a pirate or your take on pirates and then you can win a prize there or a prize package for that. Oh, that's really cool. That it is. In the previous minute, Will Turner makes the incredible contribution to commandeering the HMS Dauntless by supporting Jack with a little pirate lingo. I, avast the Dauntless crew and Royal Marines burst into short-lived laughter as they soon find themselves cast off the Commodore's ship and rowing their way to shore. Norrington realizes the unsanctioned departure of his flagship and pursues and captures with the Interceptor. The Royal Navy crew begin to board and retake the stolen ship. Or commandeered ship. <laughs> Minute 48 begins with the Interceptor crew climbing and swinging aboard the HMS Dauntless while Norrington says to the Marines and sailors, Search every cavern. Cavern? <laughs> Search every cabin, every hold, down to the bilges. Captain Jack Sparrow and Will Turner swing from the anchor to the Interceptor undetected and proceed to immediately cut the lines that are holding the Interceptor and Dauntless together. The minute ends with Officer asking Norrington if they are to fire on their own ship. The Commodore replies, I'd rather see her at the bottom of the ocean than in the hands of a pirate. We cut to the steersman at the ship's wheel who says, he's dot dot dot. Well, smug little Norrington is under the impression that Jack is the worst pirate ever, is he not? (laughs) I mean, we talked about how we thought that Jack and Will were two buffoons when he was looking at him through the telescope of Uh them dancing around trying to raise sails and all this stuff as two people. He's just like, these guys are pure idiots. (laughs) 
And then as he's boarding with all his men. All of his men, by yeah, the way. That is something we want to talk about. He thinks that they're merely just going to hide aboard the ship. It's like he can't help it. He knows as a pirate hunter and his reputation and skills mean he just can't see the forest through the trees here. Or is he blinded by his own confidence? But it says he really think that Jack and Will would actually hide aboard the vessel knowing that everybody's coming. I mean, it really is an interesting. These guys are just so moronic. Let's just all go aboard. And we'll find them. They're obviously hiding on the ship. They can't get away. Right? It, does he really think that Jack is that? I got to You know what I mean? I got to believe he does. I mean, it seriously. Like and then we'll... Oh, maybe he feels that they were just trying to get him to start searching for Elizabeth. So, oh, well, if we get on the Dauntless, we'll board and then we can take off and go get... You know what I mean? I have no idea. I don't idea, get yeah. it. I, yeah, don't, just, I don't get it. And it, is it really... Is it protocol for every seaman to actually get off the ship when they're boarding another ship and not leave anybody behind? Yeah, that's a good question. Sorry, I probably skipped into some unknown territory where you're off in the distance. Well, I was looking for my notes on this because there was a couple of things, and I guess we could maybe just talk about them now. Is there are two kind of big points that I see in this minute that I called into question. The first one was the one that you're talking about. And I don't know if it, maybe it's critical, maybe it's not. We're just kind of discussing it. Is I, I just can't imagine that it's standard protocol or the protocol suggests that the entire crew leaves a ship when they're boarding an enemy combatant ship. You just don't leave your whole ship unattended. I just don't see that as something that really happens. I wonder if it it's was... It's not safe. It just doesn't seem proper, does it? I mean... No. But I wonder if it was just because they're both their ships... And it's only two guys. Or that they needed everybody off. Well, yeah. <laughs> for the plot. <laughs> well, not necessarily. Because Jack, if they only, if they left a couple well, people. Well, like they did with Now, two Gillette. people can run the interceptor, right? Two pe- They don't need more than two people. You don't have to have more than two. They can manage it. Okay. Yeah. So, now, if they would have left two people on the interceptor, Jack and Will could have taken those two people. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's possible, but I just don't see why you would leave. It just doesn't seem standard leave it protocol with nobody that you would leave on it there. with nobody yeah. in charge on the ship. I right. think that I thought normally that you leave somebody in charge of the ship when you leave that ship. Right. I mean, the well, Daunt- normally the 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 Dauntless was out there, and Gillette had eight other mem- eight other crew members that were aboard the Dauntless, and it's just anchored in the harbor there, the bay. Yeah. Normally, I wouldn't think the Commodore would actually leave the ship. That he was initially on. Yeah, that I don't think. But I think for the movie, it it plays into who Norrington is. That well, he wants to go get Jack. I just think that he would have left some crew members or a skeleton crew aboard there to do that. But I don't think normally that he would have gone overboard. I don't I don't think so, but I don't know. Yeah. This is why we, we need to have our experts ready to go and, and come on. That they could help us with that for sure. Everybody leaving the Interceptor and boarding the Dauntless, it just doesn't seem right. And this could be just the hubris of Norrington again, this overconfidence. Yeah. You know, it's the Jack's such an idiot. Get him, boys. And then everybody just rushes across. They're going across the gangplanks. They're swinging aboard. They're climbing aboard. You know, it's this whole underestimating Jack thing. And then we're going to find out that maybe he should estimate Jack the next time. (laughs) 
that's another reference to the office. (laughs) Like I said, I think these would actually be some good questions for some experts. And yes, we are now working towards and moving, having some expert guest hosts in the upcoming weeks. So stay tuned for those kind of new perspectives. I mean, that will definitely help me save time by making things up every day. (laughs) And then everybody like, oh, God, we actually got some real stuff going on here. But yes, so that's what I think is happening. I think that Norrington is just so overconfident that he just doesn't, can't even imagine that they would do what actually happens here. Right. And Jack and Will swing aboard. I think he gets knocked down a few here. Yeah. And (laughs) well, since we're talking about some of the critical points, we can just do this right now and get it out of the way, even though we're kind of bouncing around chaotically. Do you think Norrington would have been so cavalier or maybe rash, as he would have put it, in commanding the sinking of the Interceptor? No, because he would have to answer to somebody. Because somebody's not going to be happy with him sinking that ship just because two pirates took it over. Well, that's what I was wondering, too. I mean, I think that he could have, like, regrouped and sent a ship after it or a couple ships or multiple ships or whatever he had and made that happen. As opposed to his first thing is that let's just blow it out of the water and sink it. Because I don't think his his commander is going to be too happy, his higher Well, he answers to the crown, but, yeah. Yeah, they're not going to be happy that he sunk a ship because two pirates took it. I mean, this is the fastest ship that they have in the fleet. And so would he really just want to be the one who's all of a sudden like, hey, we're going to sink one of our fastest ships yeah. or our fastest ship for this as opposed to trying to get it first and then maybe sinking it. He's and just Nor- all been out of shape. Yeah, exactly. And Norrington's not, we've seen, is not necessarily that rash person. And he's already told Will not to be so rash. Yet here he is being rash. I don't know if it's because it's a battle and you have to make quick decisions and he's thinking about that. But he is really being that rash person. Right. Plus, it just took a while. It's not like you could turn out a ship really quickly. So I, I looked it up. And by the early 18th century... And this is when we have somewhat better records, at least maybe for England and the Netherlands and stuff that I was looking up. We see that it typically seems to take about one or two years, maybe longer, from laying the keel to actually commissioning a a vessel like this. So would he just want to sink it then? I just don't think so. I think, like you said, it's more of an ego thing, not Mm -hmm. necessarily the practical thing. And that's why he's okay with it. But we see the other officer question this like really we're gonna fire upon our own ship as opposed to trying to go get it first yeah they haven't even made it out of the harbor yet i know that they got a rudder chain issue with the dauntless now but come on let's let's come up with something and try and go get that before you send your one of your boats to the to the bottom of the deep there so those are the two big kind of pieces i want to just say critical things that i have on that that's it your minute's done No, that was just on the critical pieces, (laughs) because now I'm scrolling back to my notes where I can find out where we were before you all of a sudden jump to the critical stuff there. Wait, well, okay, you could say that, but I really didn't, because that was the beginning of the the. Hey, I'm the commander here. You're the the one that jumped. I'm Commodore, Commodore Barbosa. I I promoted him. We also have when Norrington is on board, he mentions, you know, all the cabins and the holds. And then Mm -hmm. he mentioned the bilge. And I thought, wow, that's interesting about the bilge. I never really thought of what a bilge might be like on a 17th century or an 18th century ship. And so I looked into it. Okay. And I realized that everybody wants to know about bilge pumps in the 18th century. It's okay, because I got some boarding axes going on. (laughs) Boarding axes, (laughs) bilge pumps. I think we know who the clear winner is. We got all kinds of history here. Or uh, not history, but facts. And the exciting stuff 
I know boarding next people might go, yeah, that's really what I wanted to hear about. But no, actually, I took a poll. Most people want to hear about bilge action. So I mentioned it in, our, I think, our first episode or our second episode. And this is when I was talking about the HMS Victory. And specifically, I was on my coat of arms bit for the Dauntless and discussing how it is the coat of arms of the United Kingdom. And the figurehead is of an actual ship, the HMS Victory. And the Victory is now preserved in England as a museum and is the oldest commissioned warship in the world, which was launched in 1765. Anyways, the bilge is made from elm tree pumps also known as chain pumps, which were one sort of bilge pump used at the time. And so you had two elm tree trunks, which are long and straight, and they were bored out to form long tubes. These tubes were placed vertically side by side, running from the lowest point of the bilge to the deck. Then a long loop of chain was run down one tube around pulleys at the top and back at the other end of the tube. And then you had at regular intervals of this chain were attached metal discs with rubber edges, which sealed against the inside of the elm trunk tubes. The pulley at the top was turned by manpower, causing the metal and rubber disc to pull water up into one of the tubes. As each disc reached the top, the water would spill over the top of the elm trunk and into channels that directed it overboard. So that's just a long-winded explanation of how people used elm tree trunks to make sure that their ships didn't sink and they could actually pump water out of these things. So when all that water's coming aboard or there's a leak or during storms and it all filters down into that bilge deck, they could actually pump that stuff out, not worry about it. Very cool. Using trees. So the HMS Victory, which was a shot for our opening scene of the HMS Dauntless and the figurehead, actually was the bilge you know that was the actual bilge pump that they have and that is still you know as a commissioned ship that you can go see as in part of the museum that's floating out there in england oh wow that's pretty cool so this is my big introduction to actually what i was really concerned about for this whole entire minute and the only thing that i could not stop thinking about so i used elm trees and bilge pumps to get there and then we'll talk and this is where we can talk about your axes and i cringe every freaking time i see this is Jack cut the lines that are tying the two ships together. It leaves this chop mark on the rail. And I thought, ah, this beautiful boat. What are you doing? (laughs) I mean, it drives me insane. It's like this perfect rail is now marred with these chop marks. It's so painful to see that happen. Man, a beautiful (laughs) ship like this. And he just chops it. I mean, I know he wants to get away quickly, but couldn't he have just done some nice little saw action? Or hit it somewhere else where it's not on that rail? It's like, hey, Will, put your leg down here for a second or give me me a two by four to put against this. But man, that poor rail. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. Yeah, I can't do that. (laughs) Man, oh man. So Jack actually uses a boarding axe to cut between the, cut the ropes between the two ships. And um, boarding axes were used to cut down rigging, sails, and netting, but would also serve as an excellent weapon in time of battle. Like a tomahawk or boarding axe. tomahawk? Tommy. Tommy. (laughs) Tommy! (laughs) Tomahawk. Named after the famous Tommy. (laughs) Whatever. He was also, if you know, Tommy, who created the tomahawk, was actually the inventor of the Tommy gun. He had lived so long... That he created another great weapon, which, like I said, was the Tommy gun. You're Anyways, done. Done. I'm done now. Okay. Boarding axes or tomahawks are used to cut rigging a rope, holding gun ports open, to smash through doors and windows, and attack opposing crew. They're also used in firefighting to open or to break down, like, walls or doors uh-huh. or that sort of stuff. And they've actually retained their distinctive look for over 100 years. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. They remind me of the firefighter's axes where they have a flat side on one and then more of a pointing device uh-huh. on the other. These are just made with shorter handles. 
but it's kind of the same type of look. Yeah, and it's also good for getting rid of zombies, the pointy part, because you can really get. Yeah, it into you just their get brain. their point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> zombies. <laughs> it fits. No, no. Some people thought actually. Some people thought the skeletons were zombies. And, yeah, were zombies. Okay. So there you go. That's yeah. how I tie everything together. See. A vast my knowledge. <laughs> so, so that's my interesting information on on the Tommy boarding, boarding <laughs> and trying to move away from Tommy guns and Tommy hawks or tomahawks, <laughs> I should say, or boarding axes. Sorry about that, Heather. We've talked about the film's timeline before, and we're actually in forty-eight minutes into the movie, and we're just now getting to set sail. I'm not talking about the quietly moving ship through the fog in the beginning of the movie, or the tiny jolly mon sailing. <laughs> I mean, it's real pirate sailing. We're really heading out into the open ocean. There's a stolen ship. Now we're freaking pirates. Woohoo! Or, arr! Yeah, I mean, I'm not talking about the other pirates. You know, obviously the Barbosa's crew were real pirates. But I'm at least our main kind of heroes and heroines are actual pirates now. Well, we're technically following Jack in this story, right? That's right. And so we are on the Interceptor with Jack and sailing off into the great blue beyond. In the last episode, you talked about we're actually becoming pirates because we're stealing the ship and that kind of good stuff. Yeah. So the screenwriters actually built into the screenplay this idea that there are three things one needs to do to become a pirate. And the first one was steal a small ship, not small Jolly Mon size. Because you don't want to be rolling up to somebody with your Jolly Mon <laughs> and trying to commandeer the vessel or take all the loot because it's just not going to work with a tiny boat like that. So I'm talking like the Interceptor size versus compared to, say, the Dauntless. You wanted something that was fast and nimble. Oh, and did you, comparing those sizes, did you see the gangplanks going across between the oh, two? Oh, yeah. They were like almost, they kind of, I don't know what angle that is. It's, it was pretty steep, though. 60 degree angle it's or so? A, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was there pretty was, crazy. Yeah, could you imagine walking up that? Because they were so no, well, they had so ropes. Much bigger. They were actually, it's like they were They're, doing like alpine climbing there or something <laughs> to get up there. We had the first one, which is check, which I said was steal a small ship. The second one that was part of this three things you needed to do to become a pirate is to make a black flag or a Jolly Roger. I can't check that off. Third is declare war against the world, and we can check that off because they are stealing this. They're going against the crown. And heading out into the ocean to go save Elizabeth. Right. Now we all we need is a Jolly Roger. Well, this is the progression of Will Turner that we have that's on display in the film. He reviles pirates but has to become one to save the love of his life. We have two of the three things to become a pirate based on the writer's rules. But as Heather was just saying, we need that third one to conform to what they said. But we don't see him make a Jolly Roger. And apparently this was in one of the first drafts as Will creates a black flag but it didn't make it into the final draft of the movie but i think it works because pirates do break these rules and i don't think we need it and maybe it would have been more of a cliche to have him actually make a black flag this way it's like a less overt transformation for will to becoming a pirate than putting say a pirate you know putting the word pirate on his forehead or a vast on his forehead you know like a tattoo gunpowder spot then, you know, if we really was making a flag. That I, way it's all kind of just under, you know, it's all this subtle, if you can call stealing a ship or declaring against the crown. I think making, having Jack make, I mean, I'm sorry, having Will make a Jolly Roger, I think it would be a little over the top. That's what I was saying. I think it would have ventured into the cliche realm yeah. for him to do that. So I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah. Although he doesn't make the Jolly Roger, he does do the other two 
And I think that's what makes it work. And then we can watch him have to accept this thing that he hates so much. It's like something he hates worse than death, which we know he would do for her anyways, is for him to become a pirate and to save Elizabeth. Right. Because he really does hate the idea of becoming a pirate more than he does actually dying. That is his worst thing. Right. And getting back to the whole cutting the lines and the boarding axe, Gore Verbinski and Johnny Depp were talking about this particular scene and how it was a challenge to tie the ships together and coincide that with the rolling of the film, you know, so when the ships would break apart. So they had to try and time all of this as best they could. And essentially things started to moving, ropes started to tightening, and you could hear all that stretching and that cracking. So they immediately basically rolled the film to capture the action. And Gore said the ropes started snapping and wood was flying by the sheer pulling between the ships, which was just, you know, all this powerful weight that was between these two things coming apart. Apparently, one of the belaying pins broke and flew across the ship, creating a Tanya Harding moment as Johnny Depp got kneecapped by it. Jeez. And he said, Gore said that Johnny actually was in the frame of the shot and then he was just completely disappeared because he was taken down by it. Wow. And so the belaying pins are those club-like things that you see on the side of the ship that have the rope all tied that to it. That look like part of a baseball bat. Looks like bat. a billy club. Okay. Okay, baseball bat, but okay. Billy club. A miniature baseball bat, fine. <laughs> this comes from the Tommy Hawk lady. <laughs> no. It's a Tommy club, <laughs> as Heather calls it. Whatever. Tommy, the inventor of the club, the machine gun, and the Tommy Hawk. Tomahawk. <laughs> But Jack was okay, or I should say Johnny Depp, but he did play, I guess, a next scene just standing where he didn't have to get up and down or do a lot of movement because it really whacked him across the knee pretty good. Wow. And the laying pins are actually also good, for Heather at least anyways, as improvised weapons and as a means of discipline on both military and civilian ships. Imagine being disciplined by one of those. So they, they just pop out? Yeah, they slip out. That's why you can... So if there's rigging, the ropes are tied to it, uh -huh. you can actually just pull that out and it releases that rigging. That's, oh, really? That's the whole part of it. Yeah, so they pop right out. It's oh, like wow. A, it could be like a quick you, release mechanism. You would think that they would pop out when you don't want them to. No, because it's tied. Not, it's not just tied on the top. It's the way it's looped down below. Oh, okay. You have it on the rail. Uh-huh. And then it, it is a whole board through it. Say Not on the rail necessarily, but thereabouts. And it's bored through. So the pin is basically in the wood. So you tie it, you loop it around the top, and then you go down and loop it around the bottom. So it's on both sides. And in the middle is that wood that it's going through. Oh, okay. So it keeps it from coming out if it's being pulled. Okay. They can also be used as an emergency method of rejoining ship's rigging where a belaying pin or marlin spike or other short bar is used to toggle or to hold, you know, two rope eyes together. And as a means of adding heft to a heaving line when a monkey's fist, which is a type of knot, is not tied in its end. Did everybody get all that nautical yeah. stuff? There yeah. we go. We don't Got have it. to go any further. That leads to my awesome transition of ropes and our Tarzan-like guy here. This guy swinging yeah. from the Dauntless to the Interceptor when Norrington says, everybody back to the Interceptor. Okay. I have to ask, what's with the swinging sailor? <laughs> he didn't even... I think he just... Went before he thought about it because he's like way behind the ship and lands in the water. Yeah, so maybe that was another <laughs> critical point I had with this particular minute. There's a comedy aspect to it, which is good. And then I'm starting to go, but why did he swing when the Interceptor was obviously 
further than he was. He was never going to make it. No way. Being that he's definitely on the late show, I got to thinking, why did he do this? What was what are the motives behind this sailor just swinging away? He acted without thinking. Well, he is rash for sure. But I was wondering, is he trying to score bonus points for Norrington? <laughs> you know, trying to. It's like I tried. You told us to get back. I'm the only one who just jumped <laughs> off the freaking ship. Either that, or maybe he's thinking, "Holy sh! Commodore just freaking lost the interceptor, the fastest ship in the fleet. He's gonna go nuclear. I'm getting the hell out of here. I got to get off this ship. He's gonna blow." So this sailor, he'd rather be in the water than on board the Dauntless with Norrington as the Interceptor sailing away. The thing is, I also know, because I was talking with this guy, is that he can't swim. <laughs> we know that a lot of these guys couldn't swim. He can't swim. So he'd rather be drowning in the ocean <laughs> than on the dire situation that was going to happen on the Dauntless as Norrington watched that ship go away. That's what happened. That is proven fact. I didn't make up any of that stuff. <laughs> you that's what happened. Guy. I did. I had to actually find out what was he thinking. And that's what it was. That guy needed out of there. And he was, the, so he's the only smart one. He knew, okay, this is just bad news. <laughs> and then as all this is happening, then Jack is pouring the salt on Norrington's wounds and basically telling him thanks. You know, there and there goes Norrington's ego. <laughs> now he's ready to fire on his own ship. He's up for anything to get Jack and to save face, you know, as Jack is sailing away. Norrington's all, get the dang long nines. We got to get the long nines. Get them into position. Let's get everything going. Do you know what the long nines are? I assume the cannons. No. What? They are Are giant... they the Gunter cannons? <laughs> no, Gunter cannons. <laughs> if you haven't heard an episode, I lied to Heather about what the swivel guns were called, and I called them Gunter cannons. <laughs> she won't let it go. No, they were actually giant harpoons that you could launch and hit the wood of another ship and then pull it back. Oh, okay. No, I'm just kidding. Arr! The long nines are actually a unique naval gun. It was a proportionately longer-barreled nine-pounder, so it would hold a nine-pound cannonball. It was typically mounted as a bow or stern chaser where it was not perpendicular to the keel, but parallel to the keel. And this also allowed room to operate this longer weapon. In a chase situation, the gun's greater range came into play. However, the desire to reduce weight in the ends of the ship and the relative fragility of the bow and stern portions of the hull limited this role to the 9-pounder. So you couldn't have these really giant large ones up there rather than, say, you know, like a 12 or a 24-pound shot, right. if you will. So that's what he did. Okay, no harpoons. Sorry for lying to you on that. I'm kind of sorry. I'm not really sorry, actually. But that they could turn around and swivel those and then have a greater distance to try and blast that ship out of the water. So that's what they were doing when they were trying to turn things around or getting things turned around. Trying to get things turned around. We won't know that till the next minute. Did you notice the bell in the red frame on the, I did on the deck of the, the bell, ship? Yeah. What do you got for bells? Because I was actually well, wondering what the purpose of bells were. Because we see it not... I think we see it both on the Interceptor and on the Dauntless. Yeah, it's in a red frame on the Dauntless, and then it's in like a black and gold frame on the Interceptor. Mm. So color doesn't, it's just the color of the ship, whatever color they put on this thing. So there's no significant <laughs> indication or reason why it is red yeah. on the Dauntless, which I looked at first because I thought it was interesting that it was this really bright red color. Yeah. But ship's bell, it indicates the time aboard a ship. Eight bells on each half hour on a four-hour watch. 
at the tone, the time will be. Half so that's where hour. it came from. Yeah, exactly. I just made that up. I don't know. It's possible. <laughs> so There's somebody... a lot of lying going on today. I hope you're proud of yourself. <laughs> yes. The bell is chimed when an hourglass, every time an hourglass is flipped. Huh. So half hour, hourglass. Every time it's flipped, the bell is chimed. I want to know who's sitting there and flipping this sucker every half hour and watching it. <laughs> and they don't get to sleep, actually. Yeah. They, that's all they do. Every half hour, they only get small bursts. It's like on the, on the TV show Lost when they had to re- put in the code to reset the timer. You only got so much sleep. This is, how, this is where that all started. You actually had to flip the hourglass. Yes, you had to flip the hourglass every half hour and chime the bell. He was the hourglass man. <laughs> the name of the ship was actually engraved on the bell. And the bell was a prized possession if the ship got broken up. And it also helped if there was shipwreck. Because it was the only real identification that they could use. Because oh, there's no other. Up. Yeah, everything yeah. else would be maybe wood or something like that. Paint if, if and, you had, yeah. Yeah. So it would actually hold up and it would be the identification of, of a shipwreck. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that I've seen other things or archaeological digs and stuff or, or recoveries of ships where they find the bell. And that is how they identified old ships, say, from this period was basically based on the bell that they found. Yeah. Wasn't there a bell by that captain or commodore or admiral, whoever it was in Mary Poppins? Didn't he have some of his old ship stuff? Now we're getting to other Disney stuff. We'd have to look at that. Yeah, I have he to fired look, a cannon, but didn't he have a bell too? I don't know. Now I'm making things I don't, up again. I don't remember. The cook would actually polish the bell when he wasn't cooking. <laughs> <laughs> so when when he's on shift, but he wasn't cooking or preparing meals in some way, he would actually be the one who would polish the bell. It gave him another job to do. So that must be the precursor. If we have cooks, he was also kind of a bartender. So bartenders polishing glasses. That's where it all yep. came from because they polish glasses today. In the beginning, they were actually done cooking. Then they'd go polish the bell. Yep. That's where it all came from. Exactly. Got it. Yep. Now I understand. Yep. And the bell was used also used in foggy conditions. That makes sense. And baptizing children and to <laughs> mourn a death. So so instead of actually kind of spritzing water on their head, they'd actually hit them with the bell. <laughs> oh, they chime so many bell chimes. Oh, now and, I understand. Yeah, yeah. So that's the story on the bell. There's yeah. a lot of history again today. I know. Lots of history today. Oh, man. that's not, History that, and facts. I don't and, know if that can be good, is it? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> so that's all I got. That's it. What do you say we do this whole minute-by-minute minute breakdown again tomorrow? Perhaps pick up where we left off, maybe? Sounds like a plan. We'll be back tomorrow with Minute 49 of The Curse of the Black Pearl on the Pirates of the Caribbean Minute. Until then, let's keep the horn swoggling to a minimum. I am Thanks for joining us on Pirates of the Caribbean Minute. Have something to say? Then give us a call at 8637-PIRATE. If you like the show, then do us a favor and leave a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate it, matey. You can also contact us at podcast at blackpearlminute.com. We just might feature your questions and comments on future episodes. Visit us online at blackpearlminute.com. You can also find us on facebook.com slash pirates of the Caribbean Minute, twitter.com slash and on soundcloud.com slash Pirates of the Caribbean, where we post additional content, have post-episode discussions, and share our favorite show clips. 
Now see you next time, scallywags. <laughs>